if it doesn't fit into David's history, but he's the one who wrote it, what is he emoting about? What is he writing poetry about? Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Tonight, we're going to be going and looking at the book of Psalms. So what we will do is open up a couple of the Psalms, but the goal tonight isn't to understand the intricacy of every single Psalm, because here's the thing. Unlike other books, Psalms has 150 individual songs. It's not a narrative. It's not a story story that goes through each one is unique and individual. Um, so our goal tonight is to touch on a few things that will help you understand the book in its entirety better as you read it. And that will involve reading through a few different Psalms and looking at things within, within them. Uh, but the goal tonight is to take a look at the whole book and try to get an understanding of how we can read it. So the book of Psalms in Hebrew would actually be called uh, Zephyr Tehillim, which means book of praises. And so that's what we're talking about tonight. Much of by David, but by several different, different authors that praise God. Now, one of the things about praising God is that that's also connected to really the movements of the church throughout history and throughout Jewish history as well. When there have been big movements of God, things have been celebrated in song. When the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, when they got to the other side, they sang songs because God had moved. You know, Martin Luther, during the Protestant Reformation, wrote a lot of the hymns from that time period. Another huge piece of the Protestant Reformation and things that was a revival throughout church history were John and, and Charles Wesley, and they wrote many of the hymns of that time as they preached the gospel as well. So spiritual songs are tied together to revival. And so this book, this book of praises, is important. It is the most popular book uh, that is read by Christians worldwide. It's the one that gets read the most, I think, because people really connect to it because you're dealing with poetry. You're dealing with human emotions at its height 
and at its depth. And I think we can all relate to those things. Psalms also has the longest chapter in the Bible, which is Psalm 119, and the shortest chapter of the Bible, which is Psalm 117. There are multiple authors, unlike other books. David is most notable, and the Psalms are most often connected to David. But as far as we know, he wrote, at best, half of the Psalms. The other half are written by other authors. So David wrote between 73 and 75 Psalms that we're pretty sure of. 73 are notated as such in the book of Psalms. Asaph and his family, Asaph was one of David's worship leaders during his reign in the kingdom, wrote 12 of the Psalms. The sons of Korah also wrote 12 Psalms. And by the sons of Korah, it just means his lineage or descendants. Who is Korah? You might be asking if I say that so that you have an understanding of what we mean. Well, Korah is mentioned in Numbers 16. There's actually multiple people named Korah throughout the Bible, but the Korah that this is referring to is the Korah in Numbers 16. Now, Korah was a Levite. However, he was upset during the march through the wilderness that Aaron and Moses were given so much leadership over the Israelites and they rebelled against the relationship and the leadership that Moses and Aaron had. And he thought he could do a better job. And this has ultimately ended up with God basically opening up a sinkhole in the earth and destroying Korah. Well, his sons as Levites would have ended up in the priesthood and likely learned their lesson from their ancestor, uh, and they ended up writing multiple psalms. Solomon wrote two psalms that we're aware of, Psalm 72 and 127. Moses also wrote one psalm. Heman wrote one psalm. Ethan, one psalm. Uh, and there are 48 psalms that are anonymous, or we don't know who they are. They're called orphanic psalms because we don't know who wrote them. Of those 48, it is possible that Hezekiah might have written one. Psalm 116 is attributed by some scholars to Hezekiah during his illness that you can read about in Isaiah 38. But the point is, there are multiple authors going through multiple different stages of life in different circumstances, finding ways to praise God. 150 separate songs. That means that the book of Psalms was written between the years 1450 B.C. and 585 B.C., covering the span of nearly a thousand years. So it's a collection of Jewish history also, because it, it wasn't just one generation that wrote this. It really, from the Exodus to the Babylonian exile. So from them being rescued out of slavery to go conquer the land, to them being kicked out of the land by the Babylonians is the time frame that this covers. Other interesting things of note are that Jesus quotes Psalms more than any other book of the Bible, at least 11 times. Now for me, this is interesting because there's a lot of things to note about the Psalms. Now I think the most powerful quote that Jesus has maybe that connects back to the Old Testament certainly that connects back to Psalms, is Psalm 22, verse 1. 
when Jesus is on the cross and he is getting mocked. And they say, if you really are the Son of God, get yourself down. And Jesus is on the cross and he screams out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Elias, Sabach, Thanai. And you find that in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. But the words are translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the opening line of Psalm 22. Which is exactly how a rabbi would tell his students what he's talking about. Jesus is a rabbi, and the students are there. And he's pointing them to something they would have heard about because in Jewish history, you would have read all the Psalms. You would have been well aware of what this was. And Psalm 22 is an extremely interesting Psalm because there's no historical reference to Psalm 22 that relates to David's life, but David is the author. And so it's this mystery about what is Psalm 22 actually talking about if it doesn't fit into David's history, but he's the one who wrote it, what is he emoting about? What is he writing poetry about? And Jesus says the first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, what we find out about Psalm 22 is Jesus is up on the cross pointing people to that psalm. And when you read it, you find out that psalm is a direct description written a thousand years before this moment on the cross and it describes exactly what's happening. See, Psalm 22, verse 6 says, I am a worm and no man. But we misunderstand that because we read it in English and we live in North America, and when we hear the word worm, we think of an earthworm. But the Hebrew word is toloth, and it's speaking of a very specific worm, sometimes called the crimson worm. The toloth worm is this red worm that shrinks, when it shrinks up, looks like a beetle almost. But it's this exact worm that was used to squeeze out the red dye. And this worm, they extracted dye from to dye all of the fabrics for the tabernacle and the temple. So this worm is directly connected to sacrifice because of what it was used for. Interestingly, this worm also, upon its own death, attaches itself to a tree. When it attaches itself to a tree, it allows its young to consume it. And once it's consumed and is gone, it leaves behind a red mark on the tree for about three days. And then the red mark oxidizes and turns from crimson to white and then flakes off, which sounds a whole lot like another psalm, which sin had left a crimson stain and will be washed as white as snow. So this worm is very unique, but it's not just this one line that you can take out of Psalm 22. We have things that are far less metaphorical. See, in Psalm 20, 22, verses 14 through 18, it actually predicts the following, that whomever this person that Psalm 22 is, is written about, that in this moment of extreme agony, it says that their bones will be out of joint, 
their hands and feet would be pierced. They would experience dry mouth and thirst, and that lots would be cast for their garments. Well, interestingly, in all four of the Gospels, Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19, we see this happening to Jesus. He said that he thirsted at the crucifixion, which is a common occurrence because the pressure of the way victims hang on the cross fills their lungs with air and dries their mouth out, and they can't breathe out unless they pull themselves up on the nails that are pushed through pressure points. And because gravity works against the body, the bones come out of joint, making it harder for victims to pull themselves up, and they slowly suffocate. Interestingly, the soldiers also that were responsible for the torture of Jesus cast lots for his garments, and all this is recorded in the gospel. These little, incredible, significant details predicted a thousand years in advance, and Jesus calls out the psalm from the cross. And maybe the most outrageous claim of all from Psalm 22 is that whoever this psalm is written about, in verse 27 of Psalm 22, predicts that whomever this person is will cause the people of all the nations of the earth to worship the God Yahweh. So, does anyone you know fit the description of someone who is tortured by having their hands and feet pierced, their bones coming out of joint, thirsting at the point of death, having their lots cast for garments, and because of that death, the whole world, not just Israel, knows who Yahweh is. One person comes to mind, and that's Jesus. Which brings me to the next point, which is, there is at minimum 17 Psalms that are prophetic and messianic, the most powerful of which might be Psalm 22. So now to understand the book itself and how it's arranged, this will help you understand reading. The book itself is broken into five parts. You probably even see this in your individual Bibles. When you open up to the book of Psalms, it says book one, Psalm one through 41. It's broken up into five parts. And the interesting thing about the five books of the Psalms within the book of Psalms, the five parts, is that it seems to be broken up in a way that mimics and matches the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. See, the first 41 Psalms, book 1, Psalm 1 through 41, tend to be all about the relationship of mankind with God, much like the book of Genesis. Their creation and rebellion, the relationship of mankind with God. Book 2 of Psalms, or the second section, is Psalm 42 through 72, and those are Psalms of redemption and deliverance. Well, that sounds an awful lot like the book of Exodus and being saved from slavery. Psalm 73 through 89 make up the third section of the Psalms, and they are about refuge and sanctuary. Interestingly, the book of Leviticus is all about the, temple, or the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the sanctuary of God. Book, or section 4 is Psalm 90 through Psalm 106, which is about the repercussions or the rebellion against God, which the book of Numbers is also about the rebellion of the people as they chose not to go into the land and they wander around for 40 years. The fifth section of Psalms is Psalm 107 through 150. 
and they tend to be psalms about revival or renewal. And Deuteronomy is the last sermon of Moses as the people are about to enter the promised land and have a new covenant and a new relationship with God as they've made it through the desert and are about to enter into God's promises. So the book of Psalms uniquely also sheds light on the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It also is unique in that the Psalms cover subject matter from creation to the end times. So it covers the whole gamut of the subject of Scripture as well. So let's figure out how to read it. How do we figure out how to read these books? They are books of poetry. They're not literal. They're metaphor or hyperbolic, or they're just poetic in nature, and they're describing something in a poetic way that might be literal, like Psalm 22. So how do we read it? Because it's not like English poetry. It's not like the poetry we're used to. Think about our poetry in this way, in that we try to rhyme words and the ends of phrases, right? Like roses are red, violets are blue. You're lucky I like you. I don't know. But Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme words. They rhyme thoughts or ideas. And so they tend to rhyme ideas by either creating supporting ideas or contrasting ideas. And so we're going to look at some of that by going through Psalm 1. So let's look at Psalm 1, and I'll point out some of this. So Psalm 1, verse 1, one says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So, what you see already in the first verse is a stanza like English poetry. But rather than rhyming words at the end of the sentence, you see rhyming phrases or rhyming ideas. Meaning, the first phrase is, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. But then the second line is, nor stands in the path of sinners. Well, that's the same idea, just repeated in a different way. Don't walk in the counsel of ungodly. Don't stand in the path of sinners. Same idea, rhyming concept. And occasionally, you'll also see the concept repeated again in sort of a staircase model. So sometimes it's duality, and sometimes it's a staircase. And in the very first verse of the Psalms, we see this staircase rhyming, where the third line says, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And so it supports that idea in an even more specific way, getting you closer to the complete thought. Does that make sense? That's how Hebrew poetry rhymes. Now, verse 2 says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Again, this is a contrasting idea. So we see that blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but verse 2 has a contrasting concept where it says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And you see again that repeating, rhyming style. Is this making sense? So now you can put the pieces together when you're looking through 
the book of Psalms and you're reading the Psalms, you get an idea of the structure. So you can get all Hebrew poetry is like that. Even outside of the Psalms, there's some poetry written in scripture that works like this. So verse three, he shall take a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. So now you have contrasting ideas that lead to the same conclusion. So a tree that's planted by waters brings fruit and its leaves don't wither. They're contrasting ideas, but they point to the same thing. So you see that it's because of that, you can tell that it's poetic language. It's not actually talking about a tree <laughs> growing fruit. It's a metaphor for people who draw close to God and meditate on his law. It's saying that you bear fruit and you don't wither. So you can tell that it's poetic language through how it's written. Verse four, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And it draws a contrast between the righteous and the sinners. Now, verse 6, which is the, the last verse of Psalm 1. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And again, you have opposing or contrasting thoughts. So the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked lead in opposing directions. And that's how to read Hebrew poetry. So I want to take a look at one more psalm to give you an example of a messianic psalm. And so we'll read through a prophetic psalm to see if we can see some of the same things. So we're going to look at Psalm 110, which is also written by King David. And it says, of David, a psalm. Now, by the way, when you read through the psalms, I highly recommend that little subtext under which number psalm you're reading. That's part of the original scripture. That's not included or added by the translators. That's there. Those are inspired words. And what it does is it gives you the ones that are labeled give you some insight into what's going on, or at least who wrote it. This one just says, of David, a psalm. So all you know is that David wrote this. But sometimes it tells you the context of what, David was of what was happening in David's life. So if you're a little confused, you might be able to read something in First or Second Samuel that relates to what David is writing about. So, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So we do have contrasting ideas here. We have God's throne, because the Lord is speaking, saying, sit at my right hand. God is speaking, saying, sit at my right hand, and then talking about his enemies being a footstool for his feet. One is exalted, one is taken down. But this is also a quote that Jesus uses in Matthew 22. And here's the context of Jesus's quote here. So in Matthew 22, verses 41 through 45, the Pharisees were gathered together and Jesus asked them a question. So this is after Jesus was confronted with the coin. All right, and now Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and, and putting the challenge back onto them. And so 
While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, the Pharisees replied. So the Pharisees believe that the Messiah is the son of David. They're not wrong. He is a descendant of David. But Jesus responds, interestingly, he says to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, talking about Psalm 110, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so Jesus points out rightfully that in Jewish culture, the descendant would never be above the patriarch. And so how could a descendant of David be put above David? But David specifically wrote in Psalm 110 that God said to my Lord, speaking of the future Messiah, he calls the future Messiah Lord and places the future Messiah above himself, his own descendant. And this leaves the Pharisees speechless because in verse 45 it says, If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from, and from that day on, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions, which is great. And so Jesus rightfully points out that Scripture has always pointed out that the Messiah would be higher than David, which leads us to believe if David's the most exalted king or man in Israel's history, well then, the God-man of Jesus makes a lot of sense. Verse 2, The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Again, rhyming concepts, extending your scepter and ruling in the midst of your enemies, rhyming concept. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor, and your young men will come like dew from the morning's womb. Speaking of all of the troops. So it's this rhyming idea of the young men coming in splendor, but also having so much that it's like such a big army, it's like dew from from the morning on the grass, right? Now the Lord had sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now that's a big statement because Melchizedek has a big role to play in the book of Genesis. Melchizedek, Abraham met him after the battle uh, where he saved Lot. And Melchizedek came out to Abraham and he's the king of Salem which is Jerusalem at the time. And Abraham, who is the patriarch of all Jewish faith, offers a tithe to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, also the king of Salem, but the high priest. And he offers Abraham bread and wine, which is a lot like communion. And so the Messiah will also come in order of the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is outside of the Levitical law and will come as a king and a priest, which also sounds a lot like Jesus. Now the Lord, verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Now, this is, again, supporting ideas, but it keeps building, getting closer and closer to the specific point. And this is talking about end times stuff. 
So the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on that day. So kings is already plural, multiple nations. He will judge the nations. Now you're looking at a global scale, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. So now we know that the end times is about a global scale. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head. And so this whole scene of the Messiah coming as a king with a huge army crushing the rulers of the earth and them being wiped away in blood sounds like Revelation 19. It's like if you could condense Revelation 19 into a couple of verses, this is what it would say. So this is an end times prophecy. All right. Now, just we've gone through a couple of Psalms. I hope you see the rhyming pattern and how to put the ideas together and to see when things are building upon each other to more specific points. Now what I want to show you is something really unique about the book of Psalms. Remember that it's broken up into five sections. Well, interestingly, each of the sections ends in a very similar way. Let's look at it. So the end of book one is Psalm 41 is the last psalm in the first section of the book of Psalms. In the last verse says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting. Amen and amen. Section 2 ends at Psalm 72, and it says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. And so what do we see in the first one? Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the second one, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, as the psalm ends. So, praise be to the Lord, God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds, Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. The third section of the book of Psalms ends in Psalm 89. And the last verse of Psalm 89 is this. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. The section, fourth section is, ends in 106, and this is the last part of Psalm 106. Verse 48, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. And the final psalm, I'm actually going to read the whole thing. So the final psalm, Psalm 150, ends like this. So each section of the book of Psalms is ending with praise be to God. Now it doesn't matter if the section of the psalms is about rebellion or redemption or the relationship between man and God. It doesn't matter what the section is about, it always ends with praise be to God. And the last section of the book of Psalms is about revival and redemption. And this is the final Psalm, this is the way that the book of Psalms ends in the way that they decided to arrange this. Now the interesting thing is that they arrange the Psalms in this way and they're not in chronological order. They arrange them purposefully to look like this. This is the final Psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. 
Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The entire psalm is one rhyming idea. And the concept holy keeps building up to praising God. And it keeps adding things to the list, adding instruments, adding acts, adding who God is. And it ends with everything that has breath, praise the Lord. So after 149 other songs, this is the way that they decide to finish it. And it capstones exactly what the book of Psalms is about. God is worthy and deserves our praise. So everything that has breath ought to praise him. That's the best way to end a book like this. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this book. I pray that we can all take what we learned today and apply it as we read through it in our daily lives and devotionals. I pray that we learn things that drew us closer to you, but also learn things that will continue to draw us closer to you in our own time we spend with you daily. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.